0: Welcome to Episode 72 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. I'm Dan McDermott, and I'll be your host for today. This week is our In the News episode, and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity experts, Bradley Singh and Garrett O'Hara. And we will start by unpacking the ACSC, or the Australian Cyber Security Centre's annual Cyber Threat Report, highlighting that a cyber attack is reported every eight minutes in Australia. That's right, every eight minutes. We'll also explore how Australian insurers and banks are alarmed at potential legislation forcing them to pay victims whose data has been breached. We'll look at how a local council in Melbourne, the city of Stonnington, are bringing their systems back online two weeks after an attempted cyber attack. And we'll close out with a public service announcement from Apple, who have patched a zero-day floor affecting all devices. So Brad, let's kick things off by getting
1: stuck into the ACSC's cyber threat report. There's a bit to cover here. Oh, absolutely. A fantastic amount to cover, but also a plethora, I think, of awesome stats in terms of really what's been happening and what we've been talking about over the past kind of six to 12 months. Um, that stat you mentioned there, I think it was, what was it? One, uh, every eight minutes a ransomware, or sorry, a yeah. cyber reporter's mode?
0: That's right. Every eight minutes.
1: What about the ones which aren't reported? We have to wonder though, right? Like it must be double, triple, quadruple that. Um I think what's good to see from this, though, it does seem like there is an increase in terms of reporting um, to different kind of irrelevant bodies. Um, In total, self-reported losses from cybercrime totaled more than $33 this year across Australia, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, Approximately one quarter of reported cybersecurity incidents affected entities associated with Australia's critical infrastructure. Now, if we think about that as a theme, that plays directly back into what we've seen around Things like critical services being kind of uh, breached and, and uh, encrypted around the world, but also back to the uh, the national critical infrastructure bills that we've been talking on, and then finally from my end before we kind of open it up a bit as well. Um, uh, there's been a huge increase in kind of personal online um, style attacks as well. So not going for businesses or large BC types of uh, kind of kind of dollar attacks, but also just the, the kind of constant going after personal people, um, older elderly people, Facebook, etc.
2: Yeah, it's, it's such a, a kind of rich source of uh, data, this one, isn't it? And I think the thing that strikes me is it just correlates with all the industry reports and, you know, the vendors produce their own sort of Verizon, CrowdStrike, everyone's saying the same thing, you know, all the things you'd want to see come down are actually going up in, in large large numbers as well. I think that's the, the other thing. Um, it's not just that they're increasing, but the rate of increase is increasing as well, which I think is particularly frightening. Um, especially when you're, you know, as you say, Bradley, the, um, the C&I stuff at the moment is just so topical. And that definitely is, um, it seems like a much larger proportion compared to previous years, you know, things that are, I think they call them category fours.
1: It's also quite interesting that I think if we look at the, the kind of five themes, so the report um, highlights five different areas. First one being exploitation of the pandemic environment and I think we've all kind of felt that personally, but also from from a kind of a, a work life as well. Um, the second and kind of third ones I call it is disruption of essential services and critical infrastructure. Um, and there's a really good stat here actually. Approximately one quarter of cyber incidents reported to the ACSS during the reporting period were associated with Australia's critical infrastructure or essential services. That's a huge statement, like one quarter. And they're talking about here this whatever it, the, the, the descriptor or describer is, it could be. Um, the vulnerability of critical infrastructure to significant disruption in central services, or loss of revenue, or the potential or harm or loss of life, and I think that bit at the end there is kind of the key one there too. And it's going to it's going
2: to flip right from potential at some point. Uh, that's going to be the pivot point where we see this report, and uh, it'll be actual, you know, harm or loss of life, uh, life. You know, and we you know we've seen little hints of that around the world already, but uh, I think that's the thing everyone's kind of holding their breath for, in yeah,
0: not not in a good way. Oh, indeed, and like you said, Gar, yeah, that it's like it's a whole report that validates everything that we've spoken about over the last year, right? And then that we've seen come through in so many ways, through the news, through um, industry reports. And certainly the pandemic one um, out of the all of those reports that are made for every day, are, are associated with actual cyber malicious cyber activity related to the pandemic. I mean, that's just huge and, and preying on those, on people's vulnerabilities um, and that constant issue of sort of what we've been living through um, certainly has been a, a ripe ground for the cyber criminals out there.
2: It, it definitely has. And, you know, one of the things that we've spoken about how many times, probably nearly every episode is just how, like on the on the sort of protection side of things, you know, one of the things we always talk about is how the the pressure is to respond more and more quickly. You know, it's gone from responses of of days, hours, then to you know, ideally milliseconds. But the same thing is happening on the uh, the attack side, where as vulnerabilities are are kind of being discovered or or being published, they just get they get used so so quickly. They're exploited in just such a an incredibly quick amount of time. Um, that that's a real worry, you know, that, that sort of increase in the speed of execution or exploitation of those um security vulnerabilities as we go along. And that's clearly playing into the I mean the, the absolute tsunami of ransomware that is hitting the world as well. You know, that's that's how they're getting
1: in half the time. Well that back to your point, that's the next key theme in the report. I'm not sure if you're reading it verbatim, but rapid exploitation of security vulnerabilities. So the SESC call that out as is- you know, I think one of the one of the largest things we've seen. And the final two kind of key themes, I call out, just to kind of bring it up with, with, I guess, our listeners, is the idea of supply chain fraud um, becoming one of the huge areas of risk. And I think it's something we've just seen constantly over the past few years. Um, and it's always that conversation of, hey, my supply got hit, they got breached, they sent me a dodgy email, they sent us a fake payment, how do you solve that situation? Who's yeah? I mean, obviously, this, 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 that's the whole conversation in itself. But um, then finally, business email compromise. So again, that social engineering aspect and more using the soft skills opposed to brute forcing and getting a virus in there. Let's start a conversation and you know try a more social human approach.
2: I know we said this. I think we said this in the last episode, but the cost of BEC is actually way way bigger than the cost of ransomware. Um, it just it just happens to be that ransomware gets more coverage probably because it's much more of a well, it's more impactful. You know, when a service goes down or a company gets hit, I mean that's that's a it feels like a big thing. But the actual you know cost uh, as far as cyber goes is actually much higher for business email compromise.
0: Well, and it's interesting that. Um Coinciding with this, um, one of our friends of the show, CrowdStrike, have put out a report as well today talking about attribution as well and talking about the rise of sort of the, the state actors, right, that we've spoken about before and who are perpetrating a lot of these attacks. And also a lot of the, I guess, um, techniques that are being used, um, what you would have seen from sort of a, a cyber criminal is now being used by a, a state actor. A state actor is, you know, is, is sort of sharing almost their wills and skill set with, with cyber criminals as well. And so um, so we're seeing this increase in terms of activity um, and being sponsored by, you know, by large sums of money in the background so that are actually, you know, allowing this to happen. At scale, and we're seeing you know ransomware you know on the rise. It's there's a fifteen percent rise year over year, um you know, and and like you say, Brad, that's of the reported ones, right? So we know the impact that this is having on a, on a very big scale.
2: You make an important point there, Dan, as well about the complexity of where I suppose the attack tool sets are coming from, because they go both ways, right? I mean, they go from you know a private enterprise of, of the cyber world, so the you know the Whatever you know, pure play hackers to states, mm. and then they also go the other way around. You know that's the thing you see, um, uh, you know exploits and things that were used by state uh, state based actors trickle down and then be used in the you know the run of the mill common day criminal activities, um, and it's flowing both ways. And I think part of the complexity is the um, you know we were talking before we started uh, recording about this idea of cyber warfare and just how complex this whole sort of landscape has become where you know false flag operations where it looks like it's just a, you know a hacking group and you know it looks like they're just they've got together to do a bad thing but actually they're in the background they're sponsored by and paid for by a nation state um, and nation state's been very very good sometimes at actually making it look like it was some other country or you know an attack group that's well known one of those APT crews that um, have you know those interesting names like dancing bear and funny <laughs> funny clown and you know you know all the things that we're used Crazy to bear. busy bear yeah there you go <laughs> um but it's it's it feels like a mess like it feels like the worst reality tv show on the planet where there's just you know so much crossover so much complexity and um yeah it's just mind-boggling how complex it's becoming um the guys who, um, from uh crowd strike actually it was palo when um uh, Damian luke was on that's a while back now. We're you know, talking about the big game hunting mm. and how, um, you know, crews are coming together, but you don't have to be an expert on anything anymore. You just need to know how to do a particular part of an attack and you get paid for that and that's how you make your money, whether that's access broker or whether that's, you know, ransomware as a service or blah, blah, blah. And presumably the same things up, you know, happening at a state, uh, state level. So, you know, everything's flowing everywhere. It just feels like, yeah, I want to lie down. I want to lie down and have a nap sometimes. <laughs>
0: And Brad, you mentioned that like one of the things is about the exploitation of, of security vulnerabilities in the first place. And CrowdStrike have made that point as well that they've seen in the last three months that 68% of all breaches um, aren't actually using any malicious software. Um, so they're actually getting in on the ground floor, if you like, um, and therefore making it also very difficult um, to track and be caught in any way.
1: Yeah, I think that... Um... You hit the nail on the head also right there when you said track and court, like that elusiveness. um, If we think back to nearly any of the most high-profile breaches and really the successful ones, the fascinating thing is that they are almost like secret agents, right? They're going in, they're getting access, they're waiting, they're spending six months, 12 months doing that recon slash intelligence phase. And I guess this is also why we can keep kind of making it akin to the military because what kind of cyber warfare because it is that early reconnaissance to then kind of launch a further attack. Um, interestingly, one thing we have seen that come, that's come out of the report in terms of the types of Australian organisations and the different industries they're targeting is that the number one industry does appear to be professional scientific and technical services. So you kind of professional services, IT companies, um, secondly, healthcare and social assistance, which obviously during a pandemic is absolutely huge. And, um, hopefully our hospital system will do quite well with the, you know, I guess the kind of, um upcoming expected load on it but the last thing we need is ransomware in the middle or something like that as well and then finally kind of rounding out the other uh, top five we've got manufacturing uh education and training and then finally uh state territory and local government making that uh, the uh, the fifth most targeted sector and sorry when i say targeted this is a uh, organizations who have reported um receiving ransomware
0: and on that cyber warfare piece guy, you i mean you, oh, you have mentioned before that, like, you know, if, what is the quote? If bullets are being fired, it's it's a bit, it's sort of too late. Um, that's, you know, the frontier and the first line has to be around cyber um, and what needs to be happening there. And part of the recent sort of, I guess, strengthening of alliance between Australia, the US and the UK as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, on, on the day of recording was the, you know, the big announcement uh, around that alliance between the, uh, Australia, the UK, and the US, and uh, you know, seeing the the three leaders of those countries get up and do a, a simulcast or whatever it's called, where you know they they presumably were all talking to their nations um, at the same time. You know, Boris Johnson, uh, Joe Biden, and uh, our own Scott Morrison, and you know that looks like it's a broad military kind of collaboration. And you know, the first thing they're going to do is obviously look at the the nuclear powered subs, but. Um, as part of that and going forward is cyber warfare and collaboration between those three countries, and presumably that extends on Five Eyes and all the other work. They, they were at great great pains to make sure that nobody's toes felt stepped on um, <laughs> as they sort of talked through it. But it does feel like we're um, we're we're potentially getting closer into lockstep with certainly the UK and the US being, let's be honest, probably the most powerful nation when it comes to cyber warfare on the planet. Uh, in terms of resourcing and, and some of the stuff that we know is happening with those three-letter uh, agencies, so it'll be interesting to see what that means for uh, Australia in this region. You know, just given some of the uh, very dramatic announcements that our PM has come out and, and made about you know sustained attacks and, and all that stuff, but um, it's a sign of where we are, I suppose, right now. You know, that that sort of political landscape that we as a as a nation that is fairly isolated in a you know in the part of the world that we are and some of the kind of nations that um, I think we all know are are sort of persistently and consistently uh,
0: using cyber as their means to uh, attack Australia. And it certainly ties into that, you know, defence against state-sponsored attacks, right? And, uh, you know, if, if that's as high as, as being reported as potentially as high as 80% of all attacks being state-sponsored, then you do need, you know, a huge sort of defence and mechanism around that. So, uh, you know, there's no doubting that that is also, you know, an indication of of that strengthening of alliance against that those attacks that are coming in on, on a too frequent basis. And as we said, with, with a quarter of those, aimed at critical infrastructure so we know the impacts um you know from colonial pipeline and and others around the world um what that means and and the sort of ripple effect throughout society yeah it's a it's a clear and present danger you
2: know we just need harrison mm. ford to kind of arrive and,
0: and help <laughs> us out but
2: but it, you know i know you know i'm kind of trying to be a little bit funny but it's it is so serious you know it's so so serious um what could happen and i think you know, I think all three of us at some point have said, you know, we're just waiting for the really bad thing to happen. And, mm. um, and, you know, no one wants that to, to be the case, but it, it does feel like we're just going to have this just ugh, like I'm dreading the day, but we're probably going to have an episode of this um, this news conversation where there's just been a gut wrenching, horrible thing that has happened. And mm. almost circling back, it's not, uh, you know, potential uh, harm to human life or, or loss of human life, but we actually are talking about the bit where people, and pay the ultimate price like it's it frightens me
1: yeah i'm not sure if it ends too well for hand solo so i'm not sure if that was the best analogy but um i can't remember star Wars too well but um just one thing on that like if you think about it australia we really have weird borders and a weird way to defend ourselves like we've got a huge amount of water between us so from a risk perspective submarines are pretty good but cyber warfare it's like the easiest way to gain access to our country it's the easiest way to spread information or misinformation rather it And I feel like this announcement from all three leaders um, really is that kind of recognition that a realization that, Hey, we need to take this risk uh, seriously. I also do wonder um, what time zone they broadcast that in, because I can't imagine it would have been very good for Australia. (laughs) Well, it
2: was at 7am. It was actually just before 7am. And um, I just yeah happened to flick on the, the news on my phone. I was doing something else and, uh, the, the folks are saying yeah we're going to have the announcement in seconds but you know the tone of voice where you where you kind of go oh hang on this is the sad, you're this you're in big, trouble something bad's happened yeah like something something's going on here um and yeah i mean the the way they were talking about it on the the news program was that it was yeah this is a big big announcement yeah historic um, you know i think when the word historic gets thrown out then you kind of know that it's it's worth paying attention to um but look it's huge we're probably going to burn a whole lot of time that we don't want to but i mean the whole cyber warfare thing i mean maybe at some stage we have a an episode on that one because it is a whopper um you know information attacks um you know there's so many things there that i would love to have a proper yarn on maybe we, we do that as a theme one of the days
0: yeah indeed and as you said guy, like it feels as though we're sort of building towards that that big one right and, and- you know, on the end of twentieth anniversary of of nine eleven, it feels a little akin to that, right? That you know that all things are pointing towards building up to something that you you can't actually see, right, until it does happen because you don't know what what it's going to be. But it just has that sense about it at the moment, and which is a bit of a, a state of dread, unfortunately. But um, like I think that yeah, we we hope that we can uh, keep the protection up. Um, but it, it's all sort of pointing in that direction. I feel.
2: Yeah, that that nine eleven analogy is perfect. Like that, that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, a year beforehand, no one would have thought and then you know, yeah. everything changed afterwards. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an incredibly good uh, analogy.
0: Thanks, guy. I appreciate the oh. feedback. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, moving on to our next story, we're um, looking at um, Australia's insurers and, and banks being alarmed at the the prospect of having to pay victims for any data breaches. Uh,
1: Brad, what can you tell us about this? I'm uh, sure insurers love paying out their clients and their victims, but um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So, so what this is, right, so this was back, technically it was under a proposal back by home, the Home Affairs Office in July, and the whole idea is they want banks and insurers to effectively have to compensate um, consumers who have had their privacy potentially breached, or um, it's been in violation of some law. Um, the idea is that the insurer then effectively uh, um, compensates the consumer. So I assume the companies would be taking out liability around it. But it feels like it's a kind of a, a weird way of doing things like GDPR and, and stronger privacy laws. Like it's a almost like a a weird way to retrofit it instead of building it into practice, which everybody has to follow. And then it, like, it doesn't seem to have any kind of flow on back to governments. And what happens if, you know, your details are breached with the government department, as an example, it seems to completely ignore that. So um, I think ultimately it's good. Like people should be responsible and, you know, if it is an insurer taking on the risk to take on that um liability, fantastic. But yeah, it does seem a little bit haphazard from my perspective.
2: Yeah, I kind of wonder about this one. When you think about class actions and it feels like a fundamental right to get compensation if you're the customer of an organization who doesn't do what they're supposed to do to protect you. Um I think we use fridges all the time as the example. Um, you know, where if your fridge goes in far, like you you deserve compensation for that because the people who make the fridge didn't do their job building the fridge properly or testing it properly. And um so there's a part of me that kind of sees the v- not the value, but you know the logic in a law or a piece of legislation like this, where, you know, and and we've talked about this how many times? Like the the lever of regulation to make organisations do the right thing because they probably won't otherwise. You know, the competitive advantage to not doing security well is so significant. And then the flip side, to your point, Bradley, like it's just a, I mean, what a whopper of an exposure, for, for companies and insurance companies. Like it it could be just enormous in terms of um payouts depending on you know what the the impact to an individual was um like yeah cool cool but you know if it's if it's a privacy breach and your data gets leaked it's not amazing And, and it can be really horrible sometimes let's be honest but i mean there's potentially much more serious things that um you know, it could happen and I feel like the devil's always in the language. Like what does affected individuals mean in this case? Like affected how, you know, what, it's like serious harm, you know, with the NDB legislation where, okay, well like what, what exactly does serious harm mean? And I think that was one of the biggest issues with that when that came out. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it just feels like a whopper, um, but I, I kind of get the logic of it. I partly kind of think there's an analogy in, in, in normal consumer goods, but does that, does that translate to
0: the world of cyber? Well, from a consumer up. perspective, um, I think it does. And um, yeah. uh, just a, a quick spoiler alert, um, but um, the MimeCast are about to rele- release a brand trust report. Um, and just one of the aspects of that is, is that uh, that comes through is, is that consumers expect brands, organisations, to take on the full responsibility if they've been compromised. That means compensating the deceived consumers, right? So failure to handle cyber incidents effectively will do long-term damage against organizations as well. And they are expecting that it is actually the companies themselves that are responsible for that. No matter how the incident or breach or whatever may occur, it, they are seeing it as the responsibility of the organization to, to be able to protect them and protect their, you know, their information, their data, um, and their, you know, sort of cyber credentials, if you like.
1: I think it's the right approach. I just think we need to be careful in how we approach this. Like, we don't want to get in a situation where we're a lot closer to America, where we're now suddenly suing companies left, right, and center around data privacy. But like, is if it was more backed by something like similar to GDPR, where there's a lot of legislation, framework, processes in place for end users, consumers, where data is being held to have access to it. I'd be I'm all for that. And ultimately, yeah, I think I think it's a good idea. But it just seems like an interesting way to do it. And I think one of the challenges is at the moment that Hardly anyone's underwriting things like ransomware, and premiums are going up. Something like this is just going to make it even more harder for um you know Australian organisations to seek coverage.
2: Yeah, definitely. The other the other part of this is the like what did they call unintended consequences. I think we we mm-hmm. when we three were talking about the ransomware, the private bill, you know that that sort of mandatory reporting of ransomware, like one of the thoughts or that one of the the worries there is that if you make a mandatory, you, you sort of drive it underground in a way because, um, you know, the, the the potential impact to a business's reputation or, you know, let's just break the law and, and sort of try and get away with it. Um, and that is one of the other things here is that if, if you do get to a point where it's a right to sort of do a civil lawsuit to get money for a bad thing that's happened because of a cyber incident, does that then make companies not want to disclose issues or try and hide mm-hmm. them or sort of... Brush them under the rug, you know, potentially. And then, you know, to, to kind of riff on what you were saying, Bradley, um, that, that to me is maybe the difference where like a civil lawsuit is just a, it's an uncapped and unknown quantity of financial risk. And that maybe is untenable. But if you look at legislation where it's a fine to to kind of, you know, expand on what you're saying, Bradley, like a GDPR fine is not, as is an NDB fine. We know how much that is. It's a fine and it's a sediment. It should be punitive, I do believe, like, can't be one of those things that just becomes a business expense but it feels like maybe that's a cleaner way to get the outcome because it's quantified it's not a you know uncapped who knows what's going to happen blah 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 kind of thing but it's a it's enough to make the change happen but in a clean one-hit way plus you know and the government gets money and we get better playgrounds and schools and healthcare. right
1: you're saying it's a better punishment like the reality is like you know we've seen gdpr fines some of the biggest companies in the world be fined by gdpr and so what like they'll go on and get fined again, and then by the time they get fined again, their company will probably be worth more, more, far more than the four percent they had to pay. Yeah,
2: but we've seen we've talked about it. It was uh, probably four or five episodes ago now. You know, the, the some of the stuff that happened out of um, was Sweden, wasn't it, where there was a a fine out of uh, the GDPR, and um, that was substantial. You know, it was a it was big enough to make the news. Um, and I think you're you're right, right? I mean, that's part of the problem with some of these is that the fines. To your point, they're just part of doing business. They're probably, you know, Jeff Bezos' pocket money for a Saturday morning. It doesn't really matter. Um, but it feels like the solution isn't we make it civil lawsuits, but the solution is potentially that we make it better funds, but you know, it's it's kind of regulated rather than a free for all, like as you say, it just ends up in a litigation nightmare. Um, and that's a I would say a hamperer then to innovation, to industry and the things that, you know, pay for new subs
1: what about criminal um um liability for negligence
2: yeah like i mean that and that is a thing but you know if if it is negligence
1: it's hard right, in security well, though right like it's it's all over the place and that's why that's why we're doing what we're doing right like we we need better standards so that we have some type of sense to hold our peers and, and, the, and the industry accountable to
2: yeah, look, we and we don't normally talk about this uh, like Mimecast on the show, but the the Beyond Twenty One uh, talks, the one on cyber insurance, um, it's got nothing to do with Mimecast as a platform. It's actually industry practitioners from the insurance space. So worth uh, listening to for anyone who's kind of out there. Maybe we, we can probably include that in the show notes as a direct mm-hmm. link to that talk. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, it was a it was a perspective on the value of. Cyber insurance companies and underwriters and what they do and their role in terms of incident response and all of that kind of good stuff. That's um, it's probably worth checking out too.
0: And I think all of this though still points to the fact of you know, what, when do you start investing in in the prevention? mechanisms in order to not have to worry about, you know, being breached and not having to uh, insurance and payouts and all of those sort of things. But it's uh yeah, I think that that's got to be part of the the whole solution in all of this. And I guess that's the thing is, is, that this is trying to be a bit of the stick in some ways in order to sort of, you know, uh, unleash some of that investment as well. But it's 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 difficult and it's a fast moving space, right? Mm-hmm. And we see the volume of attack. So you know how certain can you ever be that you're going to be ahead of it when you don't know what's coming tomorrow. And we'll move on to the next story. Um, and but it was I thought it was interesting that Gar thought that um he doesn't want to have to use his credit card to pay out um you know any fines from data breaches. But uh, so um, might might be okay on your card. Gar it should be fine. But my card is maxed out at the moment. Dan. retail therapy <laughs> all the way through COVID. <laughs> exactly um, the next one is uh, looking at one of the local councils um, in Melbourne the city of Um who have had systems offline for a couple of weeks and they're starting to bring things uh, back onto line now but Brad the interesting words in this to me is 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 that it's an attempted cyber attack um, how long would they have been down for if they actually had a cyber attack like let alone just an attempted version
1: yeah it's an interesting one well, I mean there's still kind of down i think like for the most part well, some of their online systems are but i think the thing that got me is um the original story which broke towards the end of um uh, august the end of last month was um uh, melbourne cancels experiencing a major disruption to its it services after it was infiltrated uh, in a in a suspected cyber attack and i believe the ceo even went on channel 7 made a statement about that as well Um, Interestingly enough, it doesn't look like any council detail or kind of rate pay information or anything that was affected. Um, Really, it seems like the the big thing now, at least the story is around the disruption in terms of how long they've been down. Thankfully, it seems like they've been able to revert to things like paper systems as an example. But we've just seen from that that report that that was released, I think um, local councils and government were number five in terms of the most targeted vector for things like ransomware. You also have to wonder, though. Like, guy, you were just speaking about this before. You're talking about that idea of we need to make companies, we need to make businesses accountable to it. But if you're one of those 110,000 residents of um, uh, City of Stonington, you can't really move councils, can you? Right? Like, it's like, what do you do?
2: Is it the biometrics of uh, cybersecurity world? You can't. You can't change councils easily. <laughs> yeah, spot on. It, look, the, you, I, it's an interesting thing you picked up on down there with the the language on attempted attack, which, but to be honest with you, kind of sailed past me. I didn't even pick up on that, but it, it is interesting. Um, and, and to me, I'd almost go back to basics because if you think about the CIA triad, like availability has been impacted. So it's, I mean, it's been successful in terms of impacting availability of services from the council. So yeah. I'm not sure what the attempted means, unless
0: it's an interpretation of like there wasn't data breached or, you know, something like that. I thinking that's what they're alluding to, um, yep. and for those who aren't in Melbourne, I mean, Stonington is like the richest council in Australia, pretty much. Right, oh, and so go. really, um, yeah, is that where this you've got your, your second sorry. mansion? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I, um, I'm not sure. It's uh, it's not even within my five Ks to drive to. So, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's it's certainly um, you know I think that's what they're trying to alleviate, and guess the concern of residents and a very yep. high profile wealthy residents um, that, you know, that maybe, you know, there hasn't been any actual data breaches and uh, information, you know, regarding those people, um, I guess, sort of exfiltrated out of this. Um, but as you say, it's obviously was successful from the point of view of shutting down systems and and impacting on services. So, yeah, I just I found that a, a strange way of sort of saying we've been down for two weeks, but it was only an attempt, like nothing to see here. So, well, yeah. The other, the, I mean, the other thing, as you say, two weeks there is that
2: I think quite often when it comes to attacks, there's this perception that once the attack is over, maybe if you've done kind of remediating activities, you just, you know, there's a big switch you turn on and everything comes back up and away, and away you go. And uh, was it, I think Laurie Joyce talked about it when he was on, talking about the, the sort of breach stuff that they'd gone through, but it's, it's come up quite a few times where the recovery part can be very very complex because it's the order of systems that you bring up and it's you know this system is dependent on that so it won't boot or it'll boot it you know it'll go into an error mode or it's got dependencies on xyz and you know i've talked to people who've been through this stuff it just sounds like an absolute nightmare and something that i probably didn't have a very good handle on in terms of complexity you know just the order the order of getting a an organization back up and running even the simplest it sounds like an absolute nightmare. And then when you actually go to healthcare, it's even worse. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. just so many legacy systems and, and things that have to be turned on in a certain way at a certain time after this other system and that other system needs these two other ones and uh, yeah, complex.
0: Indeed. So it's certainly, uh, but it's, hopefully there was no, no data breach associated with it and certainly uh, something that they're working on, obviously getting all of those systems back up and running and including their consumer facing ones that are, are still uh, being worked on at the moment. The final story for this week's episode is one that I'm sure everyone has heard about by now, Um, certainly if you own an Apple product, um, which I think most of us do, um, uh, is is that you've had to release um, a new patch um, for a zero-day floor. So obviously everyone's heard about it, Brad, probably, hopefully most people have taken action by now to upgrade, if not, please do so, but what can you tell us in addition about this and, and what that vulnerability looked like?
1: Before we get into it, it's kind of interesting, right? So we've got Flubot targeting every Android phone in Australia, it seems, and Apple seems like every Apple phone in the world is potentially at risk now. So maybe we need to launch our own line of phone, or or move back to Symbian OS, or um, Windows PC, Pocket PC, BlackBerry. We were talking about BlackBerry me, the other making week. Making
2: me so nostalgic right now. So I've got one of the Banana phones. Every re- this is totally off topic, but they you know Nokia re-released the Banana phone, and like a flip oh, phone. Yeah, it's well, it's got the it's got the sliding thing. Um, yeah, amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, just, I mean, the battery lasts for like feels like a month. You know, remember those days?
1: <laughs> you don't have any apps on it or anything, do you? That's why it lasts for. Like. So you can get
2: WhatsApp for it, um, but as I my heart sank when I realized you can't. I didn't realize this, but you can't change WhatsApp between it's phones. One per
1: phone. It's unique against one. Yeah, yeah, and
2: when you change it, they basically give you a big warning saying, like, if you change it again, we're going to you know. Um, deactivate your account, so um, yeah, my excitement with the banana phone was very short-lived because um, yeah, WhatsApp was probably the one app that I really needed. Anyway, this has got nothing to, to do You'll with You'll have to it. jump onto so... Telegram
1: but we can talk about encrypted messaging some other time. Um, so this is a huge one it's actually really akin to what we we're talking about at the very start in terms of the whole idea of nation-states hacking tools falling into the right hands hacking tools being assault to potentially the wrong people. Apple haven't Come out and publicly said it, but there is a lot of news on the internet kind of uh, indicating that it was related to the um, the NSO Group or the Israeli cyber surveillance company. Who basically they had that tool, that Pegasus program, which could zero a day or one hack into any device around the world if you, if you paid the uh, the company a large amount of money. Um, the vulnerability has been disclosed, or the code name was called Forced Entry or CBE twenty twenty one three zero eight six zero. Apple described the vulnerability as processing a maliciously crafted PDF may lead to arbitrary code execution. And for the record, PDFs can be executables in a lot of different ways. Like PDFs have a lot of potential active content which can run. But I think this is ultimately, potentially at least the closure of one of the biggest zero days which has been active. And potentially at least for a year maybe. Like it's been around for a long time.
2: And they would have made a lot of money from it. Um, you know, the zero day like that, its you're talking, what, a like minimum of a mil? They go for big, big money. So, you know, you wonder, like, who's used it? I think you said it was mid-July. Um, am I right there? Did you say it was mid-July or something like that?
1: So- I think, like, February and stuff. So, like, um, it, it was used against things like journalists, as an example, and, and mm-hmm. some of the rumors, are, you know, it was, like, a million or 1.5 million in Bitcoin. But I think even then... Um, What's that worth these days, Brad? Is that like ten dollars or
2: ten billion dollars in Bitcoin?
1: <laughs> this week it's pretty good. Last week it wasn't so good, but next week. <laughs> <laughs> did you? See? I think there's now an economy in our South America which is backed by Bitcoin, so we'll have to see yeah, how that goes. Yeah, um, But I, yeah, I think this is this is huge. Like this is ridiculous, right? Like this has been an open exploit which has been out for so long. The sophistication behind it as well, and. What I just have to say to all our listeners is this is what we know about, right? Like at the end of the day, we've seen this before with the NSA. They had a huge, they had an amazing set of hacking tools. As soon as that fell into the wrong hands, the internet then had to suffer for it for the next three years. We're going to start, we're going to keep seeing stuff like this and it's going to, it has to come back to disclosure, right? Like we can't have secrets around big platforms like this. There has to be a lot more visibility and uh, there maybe even needs to be a sense of, I don't know what if it's embargoes or whatever it is, but can companies sell stuff like this? Like, should they be allowed to sell this type of technology?
2: I don't know. I mean, the questions were, you know, hacking group at Italy. Similar, similar question marks over some of the, the stuff that goes on. And then, you know, it, it feels like the the catch call when that stuff is used. It you know tends to be terrorists, pedophiles. Uh, you know, it's that stuff. And and I'm sh- I'm sure that's the thing. I'm sure it does get used for some of that. But it also feels like. And this, this sounds horrible, but if you're a terrorist worth your salt, you're probably using a bespoke encrypted application, or you're using you know something that is potentially open source and with strong keys, and you're you're maybe not going to use a. You know third third party application to um expose yourself um I don't know I mean I'm, i don't work in counterterrorism so I haven't really got a clue but it just seems like if I was a terrorist and I'm not for guess so what you say
1: yeah <laughs> but, but operation uh, ironside that was a great example though where they yeah, got heaps of criminals with the, the hidden calculator
2: unbelievable yeah but
1: but again they couldn't do that in the uk or the us because of their privacy laws so I wonder as well would be Basically, effectively, what's happening now with that cybersecurity treaty as well, if we, you know, if we'll see even more interesting tools used to as surveillance on our uh, citizens.
2: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, you you got to assume that the phone calls have already started and yeah, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of people in Australia right now who are you know that moment in the—is it the Matrix where you take the blue pill and the red pill? And you know <laughs> there's a bunch of people I'm sure who are taking the whichever color pill, and, and you know their eyes are wide open with you know the the stuff that's going on in the background.
0: Well, on that note of uh, knowing again that Gar's secret obsession is to become a cyber spy, um, I think we will well, draw it's not a secret probably... anymore, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. You just failed. <laughs> <laughs> the, f- the first rule of being a spy. But anyway. It's a... <laughs> Well, um, thank you, gentlemen, both for your insights as always. Um, looking forward to next week. Gar, who's our special guest for next week's episode?
2: Uh, so we have Anthony Caruana from uh, MediaWiz. And this is a, this, so this conversation, um, Amy Holden and myself met with Anthony when we were at Ozzert. So we're going to be on the Ozzert pod, uh, I think, in December. Mm-hmm. And um, while we were doing that, Anthony, he just started, we, we got into a conversation about um, crisis comms. Um, and, you know, my ears picked up. I was like, oh, okay, that's a, kind of an interesting thing. I haven't really sort of had that conversation before. So, yeah, we get to, we get to talk about uh, the nuance, the detail in terms of when things are going wrong, not the technical side of the response, but actually what does communication look like? Who do you involve? Like at what time? All of those kind of things. So a little bit of a different episode, but it, yeah, I mean, Anthony, he's a good talker. So uh, yeah, it was a, a good conversation.
0: Terrific, looking forward to it. And the critical element of your response plan is is that comms part of it for sure. So that brings this week's episode to a close. If you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump onto the getcyberresilient.com website and check out some of the hottest articles, including how to build a threat intelligence program that actually works from Gar himself, a look at why manufacturers should fear ransomware as penned by Brad, and even have a bit of a laugh at our You've Got Mail comics. So thanks for listening and until next time, stay safe.